Section 54 of L'Assommoir. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martin Giessen. L'Assommoir by Emile Zola. Translated by Ernest A. Visitelli. Chapter 12. It must have been the Saturday after quarter day, something like the 12th or 13th of January. Gervaise didn't quite know. She was losing her wits, for it was centuries since she'd had anything warm in her stomach. Ah, oh, what an infernal week! A complete clear-out. Two loaves of four pounds each on Tuesday, which had lasted till Thursday, then a dry crust found the night before. And finally not a crumb for thirty-six hours, a real dance before the cupboard. What she did know, by the way, what she felt on her back, was the frightful cold, a black cold, the sky as grimy as a frying-pan, thick with snow which obstinately refused to fall. When winter and hunger are both together in your guts, you may tighten your belt as much as you like, and hardly feeds you. Perhaps Coupeau would bring back some money in the evening. He said that he was working. Anything is possible, isn't it? And Gervaise, although she had been caught many and many a time, had ended by relying on this coin. After all sorts of incidents, she herself couldn't find as much as a duster to wash in the whole neighbourhood. And even an old lady, whose room she did, had just given her the sack, charging her with swilling her liqueurs. No one would engage her. She was washed up everywhere. And this secretly suited her, for she had fallen to that state of indifference when one prefers to croak rather than move one's fingers. At all events, if Coupeau brought his pay home, they would have something warm to eat. And meanwhile, as it wasn't yet noon, she remained stretched on the mattress, for one doesn't feel so cold or so hungry when one is lying down. The bed was nothing but a pile of straw in a corner. Bed and bedding had gone piece by piece to the second-hand dealers of the neighbourhood. First she had ripped open the mattress to sell handfuls of wool at ten sous a pound. When the mattress was empty, she got thirty sous for the sack so as to be able to have coffee. Everything else had followed. Well, wasn't the straw good enough for them? Gervaise bent herself like a gun-trigger on the heap of straw, with her clothes on and her feet drawn up under her rag of a skirt, so as to keep them warm. And huddled up with her eyes wide open, she turned some scarcely amusing ideas over in her mind that morning. Ah, no, they couldn't continue living without food. She no longer felt her hunger, only she had a leaden weight on her chest, and her brain seemed empty. Certainly there was nothing gay to look at in the four corners of the hovel. The perfect kennel now, where greyhounds who wear wrappers in the street would not even have lived in effigy. Her pale eyes stared at the bare walls. Everything had long since gone to uncles. All that remained were the chest of drawers, the table and a chair. Even the marble top of the chest of drawers and the drawers themselves had evaporated in the same direction as the bedstead. A fire could not have cleaned them out more completely. The little knick-knacks had melted, beginning with the ticker, the twelve-franc watch, 
down to the family photos, the frames of which had been bought by a woman keeping a second-hand store. A very obliging woman, by the way, to whom Gervaise carried a saucepan, an iron, a comb, and who gave her five, three, or two sous in exchange, according to the article. Enough at all events to go upstairs again with a bit of bread. But now there only remained a broken pair of candle-snuffers, which the woman refused to give her even a sou for. Oh, if she could only have sold the rubbish and refuse, the dust and the dirt, how speedily she would have opened shop, for the room was filthy to behold. She saw only cobwebs in the corners, and although cobwebs are good for cuts, there are so far no merchants who buy them. Then turning her head, abandoning the idea of doing a bit of trade, Gervaise gathered herself together more closely on her straw, preferring to stare through the window at the snow-laden sky and the dreary daylight which froze the marrow in her bones. What a lot of worry! Though, after all, what was the use of putting herself in such a state and puzzling her brains? If she had only been able to have a snooze! But her whole of her home wouldn't go out of her mind. Monsieur Marescot, the landlord, had come in person the day before, to tell them that he would turn them out into the street if the two quarters' rent, now overdue, were not paid during the ensuing week. Well, so he might. They certainly couldn't be worse off on the pavement. Fancy this ape in his overcoat and his woollen gloves coming upstairs to talk to them about rent, as if they had a treasure hidden somewhere. Just the same with that brute of a Coupeau who couldn't come home now without beating her. She wished him in the same place as the landlord. She sent them all there, wishing to rid herself of everyone, and of life, too. She was becoming a real storehouse for blows. Coupeau had a cudgel, which he called his ass's fan, and he fanned his old woman. You should just have seen him giving her abominable thrashings, which made her perspire all over. She was no better herself, for she bit and scratched him. Then they stamped about in the empty room and gave each other such drubbings as were likely to ease them of all taste for bread for good. But Gervaise ended by not caring a fig for these thwacks, not more than she did for anything else. Coupeau might celebrate Saint Monday for weeks altogether, go off on the spree for months at a time, come home mad with liquor and seek to sharpen her, as he said. She had grown accustomed to it. She thought him tiresome, but nothing more. It was on these occasions that she wished him somewhere else. Yes, somewhere, her beast of a man, and the Laurieurs, the Boches, and the Poissons, too. In fact, the whole neighbourhood, which she had such contempt for. She sent all Paris there with a gesture of supreme carelessness, and was pleased to be able to revenge herself in this style. One can get used to almost anything, but still it is hard to break the habit of eating. That was the one thing that really annoyed Gervaise, the hunger that kept gnawing at her insides. Oh, those pleasant little snacks she used to have. Now she had fallen low enough to gobble anything she could find. On special occasions she would get waste scraps of meat from the butcher for four sous a pound, blacked and dried out meat that couldn't find a purchaser. She would mix this with potatoes for a stew. On other occasions, when she had some wine, she treated herself to a sop, a true parrot's pottage. Two sous' worth of Italian cheese, bushels of white potatoes, 
quarts of dry beans cooked in their own juice. These also were dainties she was not often able to indulge in now. She came down to leavings from low eating dens, where for a sou she had a pile of fish bones mixed with the parings of mouldy roast meat. She fell even lower. She begged a charitable eating housekeeper to give her his customers dry crusts, and she made herself a bread soup letting the crust simmer as long as possible on a neighbor's fire. On the days when she was really hungry, she searched about with the dogs to see what might be lying outside the tradespeople's doors before the dustman went by. And thus at times she came across rich men's food, rotten melons, stinking mackerel, and chops which she carefully inspected for fear of maggots. Yes, she had come to this, the idea may be a repugnant one to delicate-minded folks, but if they hadn't chewed anything for three days running, we should hardly see them quarrelling with their stomachs. They would go down on all fours and eat filth like other people. Ah, the death of the poor, the empty entrails, howling hunger, the animal appetite that leads one with chattering teeth to fill one's stomach with beastly refuse in this great Paris, so bright and golden. And to think that Gervaise used to fill her belly with fat goose. Now the thought of it brought tears to her eyes. One day when Coupeau bagged two bread tickets from her to go and sell them and get some liquor, she nearly killed him with the blow of a shovel, so hungered and so enraged was she by this theft of a bit of bread. However, after a long contemplation of the pale sky, she had fallen into a painful doze. She dreamt that the snow-laden sky was falling on her, so cruelly did the cold pinch. Suddenly she sprang to her feet, awakened with a start by a shudder of anguish. Mon Dieu, was she going to die? Shivering and haggard, she perceived that it was still daylight. Wouldn't the night ever come? How long the time seems when the stomach is empty. Hers was waking up in its turn and began to torture her. Sinking down on the chair with her head bent and her hands between her legs to warm them, she began to think what they would have for dinner as soon as Coupeau brought the money home. A loaf, a quart of wine, and two platefuls of tripe in the Lyonnaise fashion. Three o'clock struck by Father Bazouge's clock. Yes, it was only three o'clock. Then she began to cry. She would never have strength enough to wait until seven. Her body swayed backwards and forwards. She oscillated like a child nursing some sharp pain, bending herself double and crushing her stomach so as not to feel it. Ah, an accouchement is less painful than hunger. And unable to ease herself, seized with rage, she rose and stamped about, hoping to send her hunger to sleep by walking it to and fro like an infant. For half an hour or so she knocked against the four corners of the empty room. Then suddenly she paused with a fixed stare. So much the worse, they might say what they liked. She would lick their feet if needs be, but she would go and ask the Laurieurs to lend her ten sous. At winter-time, up these stairs of the house, the pauper's stairs, there was a constant borrowing of ten sous and twenty sous, petty services which these hungry beggars rendered each other. Only they would rather have died than have applied to the Laurieurs, for they knew they were too tight-fisted. 
Thus Gervaise displayed remarkable courage in going to knock at their door. She felt so frightened in the passage that she experienced the sudden relief of people who ring a dentist's bell. "'Come in!' cried the chainmaker in a sour voice. How warm and nice it was inside! The forge was blazing, its white flame lighting up the narrow workroom, whilst Madame Lorilleux set a coil of gold wire to heat. Lorilleux, in front of his work-table, was perspiring with the warmth as he soldered the links of a chain together. And it smelt nice, some cabbage soup was simmering on the stove, exhaling a steam which turned Gervaise's heart topsy-turvy, and almost made her faint. "'Oh, it's you,' growled Madame Lorilleux, without even asking her to sit down. "'What do you want?' Gervaise did not answer for a moment. She had recently been on fairly good terms with the Lorilleurs, but she saw Boche sitting by the stove. He seemed very much at home, telling funny stories. "'What do you want?' repeated Lorilleux. "'You haven't seen Coupeau?' Gervaise finally stammered at last. "'I thought he was here.' The chainmakers and the concierge sneered. "'No, for certain they hadn't seen Coupeau.' They didn't stand treat often enough to interest Coupeau. Gervaise made an effort and resumed, stuttering. It's because he promised to come home. Yes, he's to bring me some money. And as I have absolute need of something... Silence followed. Madame Lorilleux was roughly fanning the fire of the stove. Lorilleux had lowered his nose over the bit of chain between his fingers, while Boche continued laughing puffing out his face till it looked like the full moon. "'If only I had ten sous,' muttered Gervaise in a low voice. The silence persisted. "'Couldn't you lend me ten sous? Oh, I would return them to you this evening.' Madame Laurier turned round and stared at her. "'It was a wheedler trying to get round them. Today she asked them for ten sous, tomorrow it would be for twenty there would be no reason to stop. No, indeed, it would be a warm day in winter if they lend her anything. But, my dear, cried Madame Laurier, you know very well that we haven't any money. Look, there's the lining of my pocket. You can search us. If we could, it would be with a willing heart, of course. The heart's always there, growled Laurier. Only when one can't, one can't. Gervaise looked very humble and nodded her head approvingly. However, she did not take herself off. She squinted at the gold, at the gold tied together hanging on the walls, at the gold wire the wife was drawing out with all the strength of her little arms, at the gold links lying in a heap under the husband's knotty fingers. And she thought that the least bit of this ugly black metal would suffice to buy her a good dinner. The workroom was as dirty as ever, full of old iron, coal dust, and sticky oil stains half wiped away. But now, as Gervaise saw it, it seemed resplendent with treasure, like a money-changer's shop. And so she ventured to repeat softly, I would return them to you, return them without fail. Ten sous wouldn't inconvenience you. End of first part of chapter 12 Recording by Martin Giessen in Hazelmere, Surrey